Hello, everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday service. If you would, please open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. And as you are turning there, just as a quick recap of last week, we went over um, the end of chapter 8 and we learned something new. And that's that um, God told Isaiah not to fear conspiracies or things like that, but to fear God, to fear himself. And so Isaiah is then taking that idea and saying, okay, well then, if I'm to truly fear God and he is the source of truth, then these other means are not a source of truth. And therefore, I should continue to um, take what God has taught me and learn from it in a way. Um, and so that's what he does. He, he continues to live as though God really were um, that which he should fear. So now we come, though, to chapter 9. And um, there's a sense of gloom in the passage before. And just to read... Uh, verse 1 before we get into verse 2 from chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Um, And so we get this sense of hope that despite um, the darkness, there's, there's going to be a light. There's going to be a dawn. And now we come to verses 2 through 7 of chapter 9, which really deal with this. So starting with verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So in the previous verse, we saw how there would be no gloom for her who was once in anguish. The question left unanswered at that time was, what is going to cause the gloom to disperse? Now we begin to have the answer. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light throughout the scripture is associated with God. In his presence, knowledge, and wisdom. As such, those who were in darkness were living apart from God, and therefore had no light. Now, however, there is light given to them. Indeed, we notice this as the prophet declares, have seen and who dwelt. Notice, it seems to have already happened. This is what some call a prophetic perfect. That is, the prophet sees that which will be, and then in light of what will assuredly come to pass, makes a proclamation with that truth in mind. This can only come from God, however, as only God knows what will come to pass, depending on the situations at hand. Um, And we'll see more about this prophetic perfect as we continue. For now, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation... You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this light, it brings about the multiplication of the nation. Whereas previously the nation had been in flux and devastation, now we see the nation full of growth. Not only growth of people, but also of joy itself. Indeed, the people themselves rejoice before you. The you hears God over what he has brought, which is his light into the darkness. The people who were once living in ignorance of God now have come to love, which they had once previously rejected and not really known. Whereas once they were the nation that uh, were being spoiled by, now they divide the spoil. They are able to overcome because of the light which has come. It is not on themselves that this is the case. It's not because of what they have done, but because of God. Now we come to verse 4. Verse 4. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This verse causes us to reflect on two events. The first is the Exodus, where the yoked burden was destroyed. And the second is Gideon, whom God used in order to bring about salvation for the people in Judges 6-7. through um, And this is in reference to Midian. In the case of both, it is ultimately God who brings the salvation to his people. Now, we want to be careful not to over or under spiritualize what is being said. Often we can read this to mean sin is overcome, thereby only spiritualizing it. But there are others in recent years who have come to understand this more politically, that is, under spiritualizing what is being said. Um, In the end, both views are really to be held in view. The sin aspect, that we are oppressed by sin, and sin itself will be overthrown, but so too the physical bonds will be overthrown as well. So now we come to verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment roiled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. This verse now describes the second result of the light coming to those in the darkness. The first dealt with the oppression and unrighteousness which permeates humanity. This second deals with warfare. In the end, God will end warfare itself. An unfortunate reality which humanity has faced for a long time is the devastation which war brings. Indeed, uh, warfare is, is the ultimate embodiment of violence, really. Um, yet here we find that the end will come for such devastation. The end will come for such violence as this even. Now we come to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now we come to the final aspect for that which brings their joy. The first is through the end of oppression. The second is through the end of warfare, violence. And the third by one who supplants both the devastation caused by sin and obedience to sin, which is the child. Whereas one might expect the great military hero who will be able to vanquish all foes, God supplants even this concept with the idea of a child who is born, a son who is given. It will be him who reigns. The government will be on his shoulder implies that the social system will rest on him. But the question remains, how can such an individual be able to carry the weight of such a monumental task? Indeed, a child, no less. The answer lies in what titles are given to the child. The first is wonderful counselor. The term wonderful has a connotation of spiritual or perhaps better said transcendence. Counselor, meanwhile, recognizes one who provides wisdom. As such, the wisdom which he will possess will be beyond human or earthen wisdom. The second is in the name given, mighty God. This child is not just mighty in the human sense, but has a God-given might. While evil is strong, God is far stronger, and this child will possess such power that is reserved only for the living God. The third is everlasting father. The term everlasting is used signifies his place as one who is forever. 
There is no end to this individual. The fatherhood is understood, recognized as a sacrificial love for those who belong to him, and further, a sense in which we owe our very existence to our parents, so this individual will be eternal in that respect. Those who belong to him will owe their very existence to him. Finally, the Prince of Peace. While other kinds like Assyria uh, came with sword and shield to conquer, this child will conquer through peace. The concept of peace, however, is far more. It represents the eschatological shalom, in which we have peace with God Almighty, but also peace with each other. It will be through this person that such peace will come, this child, the son. Now we come to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah clearly has an understanding of one who is not just a human king, but more. His government and his peace will have no end. Both of these reflect on what the child has brought, a stable and peaceful government, which is rooted in the person himself. Because he has no end, neither shall that which he brings. The promise given to David is assured. While Ahaz had been one who had made poor choices and from which the ramifications of those choices will be seen in the devastation to come, In the end, this individual will be enthroned as the rightful heir of the Davidic covenant. This kingdom which he brings will be upheld with something missing from the current administration. That is, the individual will bring justice and righteousness. Something sorely lacking from mere human governments which can easily become corrupted. This kingdom, however, will find no corruption, but will bring forth true justice and righteousness from the Prince of Peace. Such justice and righteousness will uphold the kingdom forever. And we do see this dichotomy between King Ahaz and who this person is. Now we come to the shocking conclusion. While in so many times and places we believe we will be able to maintain and attain all these things with our own strength and reason, in the end we find God doing all this himself. It is, as one commentator put it, humanity has come to the battlefield only to find the battle had already been fought and won. So it is, the zeal of God is what brings all of these things into reality. That God moves in the world to bring about true and everlasting justice, righteousness, and peace. Despite the people willingly binding themselves to darkness, God will not let the darkness win the day. The gloom will pass and the dawn will come. Isaiah, like so many of us, sees the dawn. And instead of turning back to darkness to be enveloped, he looks to the dawn as the reason for his hope and his assurance. So the main point of these verses are to show us a future reality which will occur. For Isaiah, God has ordained that the darkness will eventually come to an end and the dawn will come. The result are, are the results are true joy and rejoicing for the people through the end of oppression, warfare, violence, and the establishment of, a, of an eternal kingdom on the shoulders of this divine son. From him will come true peace, true justice, and righteousness forevermore. 
a truly great contrast to the events in Isaiah's day, but also a great contrast to our own as well. So over the previous chapters, Isaiah has been warning the ancients and us of the repercussions of our choices. Should we choose to follow the world or should we choose to follow God? Um, The results that come from these two choices, they're significant, to say the least. If we follow the world, it will surely lead to destruction and devastation. If we choose to follow God, then there will be peace. As we can see, the choices we make show that there are repercussions in this world. For good or for ill, that which we decide to do will have an effect on us and those around us. If I choose to lie, um, cheat, and steal, that will have profound impact on those around me, my family, and you. (coughs) Likewise, if I choose to be honest and giving, that will have a different impact. We humans have been given a will in this world, and in enabling our will by making choices, it leads to true repercussions. Indeed, we can imagine the repercussions of our choices, and it can lead to some serious ramifications depending on our place even in society. If I am president, the ramifications of the choices I make can either affect simply what I eat, or they can affect the entire nation. But that shouldn't or should leave us with a question. What of God? Doesn't God have the ability to choose to do things as well? Should he choose something? What would that mean for our world? Is it possible for God to do something so great that it causes shockwaves that reverberate throughout human history? Now, naturally, I would say, of course. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God moving in history um, of Israel and Judah and the people. One of the greatest examples of his power and knowledge was the Exodus itself, which was referenced to when he brought forth those who were in bondage to freedom. The effects of the Exodus on history still remains with us, for there are still those today who celebrate the Passover meal. So when Isaiah is so certain of something, that will occur in the future as to write about it as if it had already occurred, we should take heed. We should pay attention. In today's text, as he writes, we can sense the assurance he holds in the ultimate outcome. That which is written will come to pass. There will be a dawn to come for those who are in darkness. And the one who brings the dawn is God. Indeed, starting with chapter 7, we have seen this expectation of Emmanuel God with us. What is seen today comes right on the heels of Isaiah recognizing this grand mystery of God with his people. Despite the lack of surety concerning the events of his day, Isaiah is sure that God is with his people. He is sure of it because God has already done things in Isaiah's own time and as we have seen throughout the history of his people to prove he is with them. Isaiah knows then that when God moves in the world, things happen. By shining a light into the darkness, God is able to bring joy because that which has caused us so much grief is overcome. The brokenness of sin which leads to oppression and to violence, darkness itself is ended by the light of God on his people. 
To be honest, that should be enough to cause all the joy in the world. No more will there be those who live in darkness without light. No more will those who are oppressed live in dread, for the oppressors will come to an end. No more would humans go to war with, one, one, uh, with each other and have such violence. No, there will be one to come who will end all the bloodshed. And God chose to do this. And as far as the prophet was concerned, God would accomplish that which he has chosen to do. Still, even with these wonderful things, Isaiah provides an even greater thought, doesn't he? The thought is one of a son. Despite the hectic nature of humans in government, it will be through the son which God provides a lasting solution. God, through this son, will bring forth a kingdom which never has an end. But that leaves us with a question. Who is this son? Who could possibly hold these titles as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? The titles themselves are fascinating. As they do not portray any normal monarch... Instead, they speak of someone who is altogether all-powerful, equated with God himself. Did God fulfill his word concerning this person? We find God did fulfill his word through the person of Jesus Christ. His only begotten son, whom he sent to die for the sins of those who have faith in him. While the world had been in darkness, through Christ has come an incredible light, which the darkness cannot and will not overcome. God humbled himself by becoming a child in order to bring about our ultimate joy. Within the Christian faith, we understand this to have been partially accomplished. Within the faith, there are many uh, different members. There are many from different races, different ethnicities, who come to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those who believe all have unity with one another, enjoying the peace which comes from God together. The fellowship of believers runs deep. At the same time, we see how this world still has tremendous amounts of oppression and violence. Thus, we see how it is partially accomplished. While in Christ there is certainly peace, outside of Christ, peace is illusory. In the midst of the strife, we are still called, however, to honor Christ. For as we read in Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But then that leaves the question for us all. What would honor What would it look like to honor this king? In the text today, I suspect we have a hint. For we know that the kingdom which is on his shoulders is one of justice and righteousness. Previously, when Isaiah had been given a word from God, it directly translated into him recognizing the need to put that word into action, that faith into being. God called him away from conspiracies and toward the truth. To not fear that which was false, but to fear God. If that was the case, then the obvious thing to do is to not turn to the occult or to nature in order to find assurances, but to turn to God instead. 
So what can we learn from the everlasting kingdom being founded on justice and righteousness? I suspect it means we can, we can and should seek out justice and righteousness here and now. That by faith we have seen the Son and his kingdom has dawned and that we are part of that kingdom if we have faith. That means that we are called to honor the king who builds his kingdom with justice and righteousness. We give thanks to God that this is the case. It is not a kingdom which is like our human kingdoms, but one which will last forever because the one whom the government is built on is forever. His ways are forever. His justice and righteousness are forever. This is seen keenly in the justice and righteousness which is found in the gospel. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in time, space, history, and flesh, we are declared righteous. His righteousness is bestowed upon us forevermore should we place our faith in him. His death brings justice in that through, though we are guilty of sin and worthy of judgment, he has taken away our guilt through the sacrifice of his son. As people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel, we should seek to proclaim this gospel to others. Likewise, it should cause us uh, an urgency to seek justice and righteousness in our lives to honor and glorify God. We are called to be the salt and the light of the earth. We maintain our saltiness and spread light when we are faithful to God and his word, seeking to glorify him in obedience to his word. While we personally can never repay the debt of sin, nor can we do anything to alleviate the debt, in Christ our debt is erased. Because of this, we can live in justice and righteousness for his honor, because through justice and righteousness he builds his eternal kingdom. If we are truly to be inhabitants of this kingdom, living under this eternal government, then we should seek justice and righteousness in our lives and in our societies which we live. This also means seeking out the oppression and the violence in our own lives and in our culture. It means standing firm against that which God says he will obliterate. We seek to honor him in this way because it is what he himself will overthrow fully in his great victory. We do not do this for ourselves. We do not do this for our glory, but for his glory alone. It would be easy for us to simply say these things without identifying them. What do, what do oppression and violence or injustice and unrighteousness even look like in our world today? If we are unable to identify these things in our own culture, then we leave it as an abstract idea that can be, then be defined by anyone for anything. Well, because of this, it seems wise to give an example, to look at what it looks like. And the truth is, it looks like these things. It looks like the sex slave trade, and human trafficking. It looks like racism. It looks like mob justice. It looks like the rich getting easier sentences or no penalty at all when the poor pay the highest demands of justice for the same crimes. It looks like the innocent being declared guilty and the guilty going free. It looks like child abuse. It looks like spousal abuse. It looks like individuals who will keep people in oppressive states of mind in order to get their vote politically or to keep hold of them. It looks like allowing individuals to believe what they feel is true even when that doesn't actually fit with reality. 
It looks like indoctrination rather than education. It looks like the classic work of the devil, distorting truth and proclaiming lies. All of these things are elements of injustice, unrighteousness, oppression, and violence. They are ultimately enemies of the truth. For in the majority of these instances, it treats people as less than human. It leads to brokenness within our society and even within ourselves. In other words, it leads to broken people. As Christians then, let us seek to end these things within ourselves and then also end them in our world around us. As individuals and corporately as the body of Christ, seeking to glorify God and his majesty. We may not be able to bring the kingdom of God fully here and have it fully revealed, but we can still stand firm on Christ on whose shoulders we do stand. The kingdom of God, of which we are part, is brought forth through this Son. It is his kingdom. We are inhabitants of his kingdom through faith. It is through him we receive justice and are declared righteous. And he even begins to end the oppression and violence within us. And gives us a reason to begin ending the oppression and the violence around us. We therefore, as faithful servants, should shine the light we have been given. The light of our eternal joy, who is the sun, onto this world. None of this means that we cease proclaiming the gospel. It will only be through the sons that salvation does come. If the world rejects Christ, there will be no hope for it. It will continue to see these endless cycles of oppression and pain. Only under the lordship of Christ do we have the foundation for all that will give us peace. Apart from Christ, there is no true and lasting peace. In the midst of all the strife of the day, there is great hope in this passage. Hope because we know Jesus has come. And hope because we know he will come again. So we do not fear the darkness. Because we know the light has dawned in the coming of Jesus Christ. Our God, he promised to be with us. And he certainly is with us now and forever through his son Jesus Christ. His kingdom will reign forever. All of this leads us to the gospel. Without the gospel, this all means nothing. Without the gospel, all of the fights we face, all of the oppression, the darkness, it means nothing. Even the good we see, in the end, it really doesn't mean anything without the gospel. And so this causes us to rejoice in the gospel. And how it all begins. That God created the cosmos. He is the first cause. He is an infinite being. He is perfect in all of his ways. And he decided to create us. Create all that we see. And humanity in particular. All humans share in the imago dei. That is the image of God. And because of this we all have dignity sanctity, and worth to life. No matter what the situation is, humanity is never a zero to God. Neither should humanity be a zero to us. 
And it's this which causes us to be able to rejoice in so much that God has created uniquely within each of us. Our different personalities, our different races, ethnicities, and the one combining factor of it all, that we are made in his image. But that leads to the problem, right? As we talked about today, oppression exists in our world. The truth is racism exists. The truth is darkness exists. That there are so many things happening in our world. So much darkness happening in our world. So much lie. So many lies. And so much misinformation that it should cause us all to weep. It should cause us all to be angry in a way. But before we can even begin to feel these things, we have to also remember that we are guilty ourselves. Every single one of us has been part of the whole cycle of problem of sin. Because in the end, no matter how many times we try to justify it, no matter how many times the world tries to redefine it, no matter how many times it says, no, it is just a product of psychology or sociology or whatever it may be, it always comes back to this. Sin exists. And sin corrupts. And sin makes us guilty. And the fact that we willingly choose to sin, we willingly choose to turn away from God and turn to our inner desires and willingly subjugate other human beings to ourselves. To make people less than human no matter who they are. And look at them as something like an animal. We deserve judgment. Every human being deserves judgment because there is not one who has not failed to live up to the perfect expectations of a holy God. Because we all sin. And it's a dark world. And we are a dark people. But that leaves us with the question, what can be done then? What can be done to alleviate all this guilt, all this shame, all this sorrow. And the answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The Emmanuel. The son of God. Who came and he lived. And he died and he rose again in time, space, history and flesh. And that through all these things. He has brought redemption. He has undone the powers of darkness. He has befuddled them. All those who come to rely on his name know true peace if they truly have faith in him. And not only that, but they seek to rejoice in the fact that God has done so many marvelous things through his son, Jesus Christ. For those who truly follow after Jesus, for those who truly do put their faith in him, there is righteousness. There is justice. There is peace. And it flows from him. His very nature. All of who he is. And we, we get to experience it in our darkness. So that he even takes us out of the darkness and into his light. 
There is no greater joy than this. No greater joy than knowing that all of the ills of society can be undone. All the oppression can be overthrown. And that though we should fight for justice, and though we should fight to end these things here and now, and though we know that in the end, despite all of what we do, chances are it's never going to be a perfect society. It's probably not. Because sin is that devastating. We know it honors God. It honors His Son, who gives us His own righteousness and justice, who ends the oppression and violence that's within us. Should we follow Him? If we don't follow Him, then yes, the cycle continues. It leads to further divisions, further brokenness. But in Christ, there is redemption for all of us. And in the end, it leads to glory, where we get to experience God and all of his majesty without any of these trials and sorrows that accompany this life. And we look forward to that day. We look forward to the end. When Christ does come to conquer all foes, And so with that known hope, we press forward, honoring God, glorifying him, proclaiming this gospel, knowing that it is the true place of peace. That is not going to be found in us, but in Christ, the person of God, the son of God, who is here with us. God has given us so much. He has given us true joy. His Son has come. The Holy Spirit is with us. And the Holy Spirit gives us this community of believers, of so many people, so many different ethnicities, so many people created in the image of God who all come to know the person of Jesus Christ and love Him. And that love overflows on this world. Let's let love overflow. Let's seek justice. And let's ultimately continue to proclaim the gospel and shine the light of Jesus everywhere. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that as we read the words of Isaiah, it's so clear to those who know Jesus who the Son is. And it's so clear that your kingdom really will last forever because you are eternal. You are forever. And so Lord, we ask that you would continue to open our hearts and open up our minds to seek you, to follow you wherever that might lead that we would be bold first and foremost for the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know that is the place of peace. You are the place of peace, the person of peace. And Lord, we ask that the peace would fall over each of us and that your might would be revealed to us so that we could continue on in obedience to you. 
We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I thank you all for joining for this Sunday service. I pray that you all have a wonderful, wonderful week in the Lord. God bless everyone.